From Hong Kong, this is Mayo Kupa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast, based on the Postmodern Conference, where founders, investors, lawyers, and mentors share their stories about working on, with, or for startups. I'm Jeffrey Brewer, and today we have something special, a video episode of Casey Lau interviewing Patrick Lee. Patrick Lee is one of the co-founders and founding CEO of Rotten Tomatoes. He will share about his experience on building startups in Hong Kong, China, and the US. I hope you enjoyed this postmortem conference talk. Hey, everyone. Uh, I'm very excited to have Patrick Lee here today for the postmortem talk. My name is Casey Lau, and uh, I think Patrick was our very first speaker at Startups HK like 10 years ago when he talked about Rotten Tomatoes. So I think everybody knows the Rotten Tomatoes story quite well. If you don't, well, there's a, we, I think we posted a YouTube video and there's a hundred talks of Patrick talking about the starting of, of Rotten Tomatoes to exiting Rotten Tomatoes. But little did you know, he also did two other startups after Rotten Tomatoes, and that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, Patrick, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Casey. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you are in San Francisco. I am in Vancouver, and the postmortem conference is in Hong Kong, so this is truly international, international talk. So um, let's talk a little bit about Alive Not Dead first. Uh, what was Alive Not Dead? Alive Not Dead was a social network, kind of similar to MySpace. The idea was that you could connect celebrities and artists with each other as well as to their fans. Started it in 2007 uh, and ran it until about 2013, so six years. So, so back then there wasn't a lot of Facebook and Twitter and things like that. And uh, um, a lot of uh, the fans of say Jet Li, and some of these mostly Asian like uh, celebrities, right? That's where it came from. They wanted to connect with their uh, fan base more. And so you guys basically from building Rotten Tomatoes and having a lot of connection with uh, these kind of uh, celebrities decided to build um, on this with some other celebrities from Hong Kong. We were just big fans of Jet Li, Jackie Chan, um, Rotten Tomatoes. The idea for Rotten Tomatoes kind of started from Jackie Chan. My co-founder, Sen Dong, had a, his idea was he wanted to know what everyone was saying about Rush Hour when it was coming out. And so it was kind of inspired in part by Jackie Chan. We, a lot of us did this martial art called Wushu that Jack, Jet Li was very good at. Mm -hmm. And so we actually managed to get in contact with him and end up doing his website, his official website, uh, during Rotten Tomatoes. And so when we were gonna do Alive Not Dead, it actually came out of this movie called The Heavenly Kings that was directed by this actor, Daniel Wu. So I knew Daniel from, from the Wushu days back in the Bay Area. He was from the Bay Area. And so in the summer, he would come back. He went to University of Oregon, but when, in the summer, he would come back to the Bay Area to do Wushu. And that's where we knew each other. Um, and so when, we, when I sold Round Tomatoes, I was hanging out in Hong Kong. And he kind of approached me about like uh, investing in a movie he wanted to do, direct, because typically he, he was always acting. And he told me the idea. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this sounds interesting. I'll put some money in. And they made this movie called The Heavenly Kings. They were a boy band called Alive. And they actually, you know, made music videos, toured and con played in concerts and everything. And it was all to make this mockumentary. Um, so they were like a fake boy band. They were trying to make a statement around the entertainment industry, the music industry, on how did these four, you know, at the time, 30-something-year-old guys, three of which could not sing at all, you know, become a boy band and kind of become accepted. And so after the movie came out, um, well, when the movie was being made, they released a website called Alive Not Dead. They couldn't get Alive.com 
Um, so they found Alive Not Dead and they made it about the movie and the boy band. But after the movie came out, we decided to kind of expand it and do something to try to kind of like help the entertainment industry. And that's where the idea for it all started. Wow. Um, and so when we worked on it, we had profiles for, you know, all the, all of them. They brought in a lot of other artists. We were doing the official Jet Li site. We actually got connected to Jackie Chan through Daniel and started doing the official Jackie Chan site. Uh, and so it kind of all came together uh, in 2007. And so as a fan, what would I get out of it? I would register and be able to like send messages to Jackie Chan? So the idea was, it was basically a place that they could post up social media. So primarily blogs, they could do photos and videos as well. Um, and yeah, they could comment on each other's. So <laughs> what year is this? <laughs> 2007, I think was when we started. Amazing. So, um, so folks like, bigger folks like Jet and Jackie is primarily just a place that they could put it at updates. Whereas um, other artists, maybe who are a bit younger, maybe more internet savvy, would actually, you know, go in there and, you know, write back to each other, you know, connect with each other. So you would see a lot of these celebrities who are connecting to each other on there. And it was really them, you know, we would verify them, uh, the profiles to make sure they're real. And, you know, they would occasionally respond to comments from fans as well. And eventually it became more like a creative uh, uh, web, website platform, right? For like directors to meet with actors and things like that. That's kind of how it evolved after being a, a fan platform. Is that right? Yeah. So we didn't limit it to just celebrities. I mean, we tried to get some of them because they were good like anchors to bring on other people, but it was more about supporting artists. So um, any type of creative uh, from music to film, but even within film, let's say, it wasn't just actors, it was directors, producers, writers, you know, uh, director DPs, things like that. Um, on the music side, books, uh, illustration, painting, like basically anything kind of creative sports even, um, we, we would kind of have categories for all these different types of, of artists. Did you guys take any uh, venture capital on this venture? In the beginning, it was primarily myself and my old co-founder, Steven, who was our CTO from Rotten Tomatoes, we, we were putting in the money. We eventually raised a little bit more money on top of that, but that was like a few years in. Um, because one problem for us is we started in 2007, we put our own money in. I was in the process of trying to raise money, um, even had some verbal commitments and then 2008 hit and it just, things kind of went crazy. And so we said, you know what, well, let's just keep going. Let's keep pushing forward. But we were self-funding for a few years after that. Oh, so you've already been through a pandemic financial crisis um you're in your life besides uh, now everybody else is in the covid time yeah i actually for me when we raised money for rotten tomatoes it was january 2000 and two months later was when the internet stock bubble burst yeah. and you know 18 months after that was 9 11 so i went through it one time then when we we're doing alive and the dead went through it again and right now i'm not doing a startup but now it's happening again <laughs> now if you were in one you could say you collected all these uh financial crisis is all the time through your career. Yeah. Makes you stronger though, right? Is there um, any, any stories you can remember from Alive Not Dead, uh, you know, the growth strategies, um, you know, when did it maybe get to its peak or when did you know it was successful or not successful? So I think initially we had uh, some pretty good momentum because we were coming off of the film, uh, kind of had a bunch of press, you know, within Hong Kong about what we were trying to do with the website afterwards. Uh, Daniel and, and the other 
actors from the Alive band were quite active. You know, we got Jet Li on, Jackie Chan on. So we had like pretty good momentum early in the process of trying to raise money um, and things were moving quickly. Once the market crashed and we couldn't raise money, you know, we were self-funding. We kind of pulled back a little bit on, on our spending, obviously, and things a little bit started slowing down. And this was, so the first two years, I think was when we had the most momentum, most growth. We were primarily getting artists through word of mouth. So actively recruiting initially through the Alive Boys network and then eventually, you know, a lot of it was me following up on connections and connections of connections. Um, and then from the user standpoint, a lot of it was, you know, this was kind of like when viral loops and all that stuff were kind of getting big. So we were pretty actively trying to be like, you know, following the, the typical social network um, uh, play, play guide or whatever um, of you go in, you register, you try to connect your contact list, you can spam your contact list, and then hopefully some of them will come on and they'll register. And you try to like optimize that viral loop. I mean, that's not as much a thing these days, but for a while, yeah. kind of early days of Facebook and MySpace and stuff, it was quite big and, and a good way to grow. It's amazing. You, you're, your three startups are like at three different intervals of the internet, right? Rotten Tomatoes didn't have any social uh, connection to it at the beginning. Then you are like at the beginning of one, the next one. And then your third one was right in the middle of it, creating the games for social networks. But uh, let's go back. How did you apply anything you learned from Rotten Tomatoes into Alive Not Dead? Because they're both entertainment driven uh, platforms. Was there anything there that you, you know, you could easily apply to gain more, me more traction or whatever, besides just the celebrities being on the site? It was, even though they're both entertainment, both, you know, websites and all that, actually a lot of things had changed. I mean, one, we were in Hong Kong versus yeah. the States. Yeah. Um, even though we were working in entertainment, when we were on Tomatoes, we actually didn't work directly with entertainment very much. Right. We were, we were a rating system for movies. So the only time we really dealt with studios was like, you know, trying to sell ads for movies. Mm. Right. Um, the, with Alive Not Dead, we were working directly with celebrities and their managers and agents and things like that. And it was very different because with Rotten Tomatoes, like you could have rotten ratings for a movie, you know, but when you're working directly with them, you know, obviously it has to, you have to keep it very positive. So we didn't want to go into like gossip news or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, but it was, it was quite different. And also working directly with artists versus working kind of only with the marketing departments of studios was, was a big change. Yeah. Um, Viral loop was something relatively new that we didn't really use for Rotten Tomatoes. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a change. The one thing we did use a lot, like from Rotten Tomatoes that we carried over into Live Not Dead was search engine optimization. So that was a big, that was like the primary source of traffic for Rotten Tomatoes. It was a decent source of traffic for a lot of Not Dead because we got it to a point where a lot of these artists, um, when they created these profiles, because the profiles had so much good information about the artist, they would, it would show up pretty highly on search engines. So that would help to drive traffic um, to us. So it was kind of like a combination of, of viral loop as well as search engine optimization. Good. But outside of that, a lot of things were different for us. And it was, it was quite different to try to operate in a new country um, in a, with a slightly different focus uh, on, around entertainment. And then, uh, and is that why you kind of focus more on the Asian uh, celebrities rather than uh, Western American uh, celebrities? Is that maybe? Um, it was mainly because we were based over there. 
in Asia. So it, we felt like it made sense to try to, at the time we were trying to follow what MySpace was doing in LA. And I think originally they started by kind of getting on the celebrities and cool people and then everyone else followed. So we we're like, oh yeah, let's try and, and do that. Um, but, you know, I think part of it was it being 2008, part of it was just, you know, Hong Kong isn't really a huge market. Whereas, you know, China's huge, um, the US is huge, but Hong Kong by itself is, is quite small. Um, so it was, and so even within Hong Kong, we were primarily getting the westernized celebrities, yeah. like Daniel, so yeah. where they were, their native language was English still. English, yeah. um, so we weren't really even getting the local celebrities too much. Do you think it would have been more successful if you had gone back to the US and done it out of, out of LA? Um, well, I mean, it would have been very competitive with MySpace, so that would have been difficult. Um, I think really one of the biggest problems we had with Alive Not Dead, looking back, was we were trying to do too much. And that's something I would say was a problem with my company afterwards as, as well, was you know, we were trying to feature match all these social networks that were coming up in China and the US. Mm -hmm. You know, you had uh, Weibo and Weixing, you know, like Chinese Twitter and all those things. Mm -hmm. um, and there were multiple of these Twitter kind of clones in China competing against each other. Uh, Sina had one, Tencent had one, uh, and a couple other groups had them as well. On top of the ones that were big in the US, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram were, were the big ones. Yeah. And, and they're all coming up. They're all incredibly well-funded companies with literally thousands, hundreds to tens of thousands of engineers. And we had three engineers and we were trying to feature match them. And it just didn't make sense. Yeah. You know, we would have been much better off trying to be, do something much more simple and more manageable. I mean, now, you know, with hindsight, 2020 hindsight, probably the model that would have made the most sense for us would have been like a Patreon or something like that. Yeah. Right. Because that was actually the biggest problem that artists had was how to make money. You know, connecting the fans wasn't a huge problem. It was solved pretty well by all these other social um, media companies. Yeah. Right. And uh, even connecting with each other was useful, but still end of the day, the number one thing they cared about was how do I make money to make a make living? Money. Exactly. And Patreon solved that really well. And looking back, Either it would have been to launch something like a Twitter that was simpler, but except there was already so many Twitter. I mean, Twitter in the US, but plus all the clones. Yeah. So that didn't, you know, you would have been running into a lot of competition, but really the one that looks, would have made the most sense, I think would have been something like Patreon. Yeah. Um, it was quite focused and simple. Uh, like the stuff we built, we built so many things, but to build just a Patreon, just a payment system would have been much, much easier. Yeah. And it would have solved the biggest problem that the artists had rather than us trying to solve everything. We were trying to help them get jobs, help merchandise, you know, help them reach their fans, connect with each other. And it's just too many things. 2008 was a totally different time. It's only 12 years ago, but it's like, there probably wasn't even a groundswell of these uh, creators online looking for ways to make money, right? There wasn't a lot of like these kind of uh, gig economy things where you could actually make a living from Patreons, uh, donating to your Kickstarter or your new album, or just giving you three bucks a month, right? From thousand people to make make ends meet. So quite interesting. So it's always like a timing issue, I think, in a lot of startups, success and failure is really, really based on that. that. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's, okay, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I mean, I was saying, uh, 
I don't have exact dates, but I want to say around that time, I think Kickstarter and Indiegogo were around, and that was definitely an interesting model. Um, I think YouTube was around, and there were some of these early creators yeah. on YouTube that were getting bit pretty big. Actually, a lot of them were Asian, Asian Americans, right? Yeah. Like Ryan Higa and and uh, Michelle Fan and some of those type of uh, Freddie Wong, I think. That's true. That's true. And also, I remember Indiegogo did come to uh, boot to do a talk. Uh, the founder, she came out to Hong Kong and was looking for recruiting people way back then, like, like the same time you were doing your talk at, at that at our old co-work space. So it's kind of interesting. Oh, yeah. You're right. So it was it was there, but it was just starting, I think. Yeah, yeah. Like they were already like, a little bit uh, further ahead than that because we started in we, we started in 2010. So it was a couple of years after already you guys right. started doing uh, Alive Not Dead. So I think um, also there was stuff like Cafe Press, Zazzle, you know, yeah. whatever. But it, again, it wasn't the way it is now, but it was it was kind of early days for that. And then I also remember on Startups HK, we also reported on your sale like one of the early stories into uh, Startups HK, we had the sale with uh, everybody was there for that. Talk a little bit about what happened. How did you end up selling it? Who bought it? Why did they buy it? Kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, to be honest with the Live Now Dead, it got to the point where we had been running for six years. One thing that we believe because of Rotten Tomatoes was, you know, you never fail until you, you give up. Right. And so as long as you keep pushing forward, you'll be fine. I actually think looking back, that was the wrong way to approach things. It was actually the wrong <laughs> okay. way to think about things. I mean, with Rotten Tomatoes, it made sense for us to keep pushing through because we kept growing while we were running it. Even when the market crashed, even after 9-11, our, our revenue, traffic, and brand all continuously grew, even during those times. So yeah, it made sense to keep pushing through. But Alive Not Dead, after that first two-year bump, we actually flattened out and we were having like a very slow decline. It wasn't like quick, but it was a slow death. And so we were basically like a zombie for four years, to be honest. Um, and we were doing everything we could. We were working our butts off. Like I was probably working harder on Alive and the Dead than I was on Rotten Tomatoes. It just wasn't working. I think again, partly because we just bit off way more than we could chew. Um, and then the big problem, I think we, we got to the point where you know, I was trying to bring in another person to take over as CEO. He had a really good background. He had a lot more experience within Asia, you know, and we felt like we still had interesting pieces, you know, with, with Daniel, Jet, Jack, Jet Li, Jackie Chan, you know, we had a good tech team. Um, we had uh, users and brand. So we thought maybe someone else could like remix things a little bit, come up with a new idea or, or a pivot for it and, and kind of save it. And so I was prepared to step off as CEO, go back to the States, have someone else take over. Ultimately, that didn't quite go through, but we were lucky in that through our networks, we, we knew this person, Stephen Goh, who had a company called Migme, and turned out they were actually interested in acquiring us for, for stock. And the primary reason was because they were trying to IPO, I believe, in Australia, and they felt like they could you know roll some assets around kind of like entertainment and then uh, make a more attractive package so the timing of it actually worked out pretty well we we sold to them for some stock and we didn't make any money really but it was enough that we were able to pay our investors back so they actually got all their money back um but on the flip side you know for the for us like myself and steven and and the team we basically threw six years into it and it, it was definitely an interesting time. I learned a lot. Uh, 
had a lot of fun. You know, it was a little bit stressful towards the end, just trying to, you know, keep things alive. That's kind of how, how things eventually ended. We were able to end kind of on a neutral note. And the legacy still is alive, not dead, is the Halloween party in Hong Kong. Yeah, I think it's, I think it still goes. I, I mean, I haven't been back in a, in a long time for those parties. Uh, but yeah, that was definitely... Rafi's <laughs> still running them. Yeah, that was something that we started, even from like the Rotten Tomatoes days, we would have Rotten Tomatoes Halloween parties. So we're like, and again, those were just for fun. And we said, hey, why don't we kind of try that with Live Not Dead? And it actually became like a, a mini business. It was. Um, it was great. Yeah. It was great. Okay, so, so after all this, it's the sale, you go back to the US, you're back in San Francisco, you're still got ideas, you're still a young man, you still don't have kids, you don't have anything of this kind of thing, and you're like, I'm a, I'm a big gamer, and so I'm going to start a new startup, and it's all about games. Talk us through the thought process between Alive Not Dead and Hobo Games. Yeah, so um, I think actually when I got back, I was quite burned out. Okay, good. And I was hanging out with- burned out with a friend, uh, Lyle Fong, who I knew from freshman year of college. He was just right down the hall from me. And he was doing a company called Lithium. And he'd been doing that also for a long time since when we were doing Rotten Tomatoes. And we were just hanging out. He had visited a couple of times in Hong Kong while I was there. Mm-hmm. And originally he was talking about doing another enterprise company. And he told me the idea and stuff. And I, you know, I was super burned out at that time. And I was just like, you know, after lithium, you never need to work again, like ever. Why don't you just retire and take a break? And, and after you take a break, if you still feel like you need to do something, why don't you either do something for fun, like start a band, write a book, you know, make a, <laughs> direct a movie, or do something like crazy, like moonshot, like, like Elon Musk, you know, try to send us to Mars or you know, make a Tesla or something like why just do another enterprise company because that pretty much just be for money. And he didn't need to do that anymore. Yeah. Like after, after lithium. Um, and so, he, you know, he was kind of, he didn't really respond at the time. And then I think about two weeks later, we were all hanging out at his house, just having dinner, some friend, some of his close friends. And uh, he, he had a couple of drinks in him. And I remember him standing up and he was just like, I know I have an idea. Let's make a game. And then he basically at that dinner kind of pitched all of us, right? And we didn't really say yes or no, but I remember the next day I woke up and I was just like, I don't know if he was serious. And so I kind of called him, I'm like, are you actually serious? And, and he was like, yeah. And so we actually decided to do it mainly because both of us loved playing games. And, and for him, it kind of fell under the do something for fun part. And for me, I was burned out, but I was like, you know, growing up, I played a ton of games and I was just like, it was something I always kind of wanted i think anyone who's a big gamer always was like oh it'd be fun to try and make a game so then we decided to try and do it we raised a good chunk of money i think over for the lifetime of the of the company we raised around five million for it and um yeah put together a team decided to do mobile because it just seemed like that was the most logical place to even for five million you could probably do a decent mobile game but for five million it'd be hard to do like a good console game sure um and so we just thought it made the most sense. There was the most opportunity there. Both you and Lyle are not game developers though. You're just game no. players. Just gamer. Yeah, hardcore gamers. But like his brother was this guy, Dennis Fong, who yeah. is known as Thresh, who was like the first professional gamer. So I mean, he- He should have been in the company. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so we decided to do it, but you know, it turned out that it's actually pretty hard, especially because we didn't have a gaming background. It was a lot more difficult than we expected. 
we did manage to put out a game that we're actually quite proud of. Like it looks like a real game and everything. It well, played well. Called and what was it about? It was called Storm the Gates. And the, the main, main idea that we raised money around was uh, that games are going to be more, even more social. And we were trying to, our thought was, what if you could bring like kind of like guild mechanics of like a World of Warcraft um, to a simpler like mobile game type of uh, setup, you know, so you could kind of have this like community type of feel, but bring it to a simpler, maybe mid-core level game, not a hardcore game like World of Warcraft. Mm. Um, and so the game was called Storm the Gates. It was basically like a real-time, like multiplayer synchronous uh, RPG. Um, role-playing game so you actually were in the town with other players at the same time like you if they moved around you would see them moving around you could wave and 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 chat with each other join guilds and then when you went into battle it was you against one other player like live along with one assistant so it's basically like two on two but you controlled you and your assistant and they controlled them and their assistant and um yeah and so there's a whole you know balancing creating all this gear you could wear like armor different pieces of armor you could load up different skills and you could upgrade those things so similar to like a flash royale kind of upgrade system um and you could pick different trainers that you could like unlock and then bring them with you and so you essentially had three areas that you could kind of uh, experiment with different builds um and we did have we did get some users who are super hardcore like playing all the time spending like a decent amount of money on it but we just didn't have enough of them Mm. but yeah i mean overall we were we were proud of what we made i think we did make a ton of mistakes um that had we known better uh about like designing games about mobile games in general and also like my later lesson learned around just being more focused i think those things could have helped us a lot with with our company but it's kind of stuff that we didn't know until afterwards what year did you start doing this and how long did it take you to make the game? 2013 till about 2018, we, we first tried making a really simple kind of like a puzzle game with the similar mechanic to Puzzle and Dragons of dra- you know, dragging around a gem. Yeah. Um, and it was more just a process of like, how, how do you make a game? And so we made one and actually released it to the store so we can kind of learn about what we, how to do that. So that took about, can't remember exactly like six, six to 12 months. Like, you know, that first year we're just kind of figuring out what we we're doing. And then we went hardcore into the development and that took like, I think like three years. I mean, it took a long time. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so. I remember coming to see you in your office in downtown San Francisco. Was that the beginning of Hobo or towards later on? You didn't only had maybe, you didn't have that many people. So I, I don't think, I think it was early on, maybe when you're making the puzzle, the puzzle game. No, I mean, we started in Berkeley. And okay. so that was early on. When we moved to SF, that was already probably a year or two in. I, I'm, okay. I'm kind of blurry, but um, so that was probably like already, we were already developing Storm of the Gates at that point. But we might not have gotten to that because it took us a while to even get to the point of what exactly are we making. Yeah. And though, that, that again would be one of the mistakes we made. Um, Talk back. a little bit about how you pitch this kind of game idea, game startup to investors. Um, so if you're saying it's 2013, this is only three years uh, after iPhone or a little bit more than a little bit. So mobile gaming is a kind of a new thing. 
Um, but it's, it's obviously growing like crazy. So I, I guess the appetite for investment into game companies for mobile is pretty big at that time. Well, I think a lot of it was really, you know, one was really Lyle. He was really good at fundraising. You know, he's coming off of lithium, which had, you know, grown a lot since he first started raising money. Um, so we raised from the same main investor for lithium. And, you know, honestly, they were just doing it to support Lyle. Um, and, and he was also like, you know, working with me. So we're basically raising off of kind of like lithium and rotten tomatoes more than anything else. Sure. At the same time, we were like, mobile gaming is getting really big. You know, there's these big hits like Puzzle and Dragons, you know, Supercell was, was doing quite well. Um, and they were started, you know, could be built with relative, if you could hit, get a hit game, you could start with a relatively small team and, and happen upon a really big hit. Yeah. And so, um, and our idea, whole idea about this like community social guild kind of aspects and bring it to more of these like mid core games that are popular on mobile. And so those are probably three main things we were kind of raising around. Our deck was quite simple and, and did leverage heavily around team. Interesting. Okay. And then, so, so what happened then toward the end then you, so you decided you couldn't get enough uh, users. And again, I guess you learned a little bit about Alive Not Dead. If it's not going skyrocketing, it's turning into a zombie or going down and you decide that's it. Let's wrap it up. So it's different for mobile gaming than it was for Alive Not Dead. Cause Alive Not Dead, you know, we could get something out there within a, a few months. I mean, and instantly yeah. you can start seeing you're getting users and you can kind of make adjustments on the fly with gaming. You could, launch earlier tests but like you know if we wanted to get featured then you can't launch like you pretty much need to launch when you're getting featured yeah um so before that we would launch into other countries and and try and buy ads on facebook and stuff just to see like what did the engagement retention look like how much they cost to acquire a user you know and just working on issues um and we had to do that for a long time uh running these tests and um, you know, with games too, it's like a lot of times you can't as easily tell. It's like, it takes longer to iterate around the game and you kind of have to release something that's fairly complete to really tell what's going on. Mm. Um, whereas with the website, you can kind of launch really quickly. So it's a little bit different launching game. It's launching a game is closer to like launching a movie. Yeah. And yeah, you could release earlier things and simpler things, or maybe like a trailer or like a, um, almost like a pilot kind of, uh, you know, if it was like a TV show, but to actually get a sense of what is it going to look like at the end, it's, it's not as easy as like iterating around a website. There's no way you can release a game in like a simpler format, right? Like a, like a movie, you could probably release like a comic book uh, to get the story across, something cheap just to get it out there and just like kind of build awareness. But for a game, there's really no way, right? You have to put out like basically a finished product, like a, like a Avengers movie, you can't put out like half an Avengers movie or like a something lower to see if people want to see it. Right. I guess that's what Iron Man was. The first Iron Man was kind of like a lower budgeted to see if it worked. And then they thought, Oh, it looks like it's going to work so they can add on top of it for game. I think it's got to be like, you're competing against people don't know the difference between like a clash of clans and what you guys are building. Right. Cause it looks like it's an even playing field when you see it in the app store. There's like multiple steps you can do, but a lot of them are not as really public. I mean, first version you can just write out some simple rules mimic as much as you can with like you know little um like monopoly pieces or something you know yeah. rolling dice for chance and 
uh, or write, you know, putting things on the playing cards and writing out some stuff, right? So, you, you know, you could do stuff like that and prototype certain things around that. Um, and then you can even do some early tests around in Unity where you're like, okay, let's test certain aspects of it of like, oh, let's try and get it so you can play together or let's try and get it so, hey, you can make your guy attack and do these things. Really basic, you know, almost no art or just placeholder art kind of stuff. And that's something you can kind of test internally, mess around with that for a bit. Then we can kind of test, do tests with just friends for a bit, which is a little bit more developed. And then maybe there's something that we're like, okay, maybe we can try this in another country, but it's like still quite far from that final. Yeah. So you can kind of test along the way, but um, it's not quite the same as like, again, like a website. You can basically launch to your audience right like very, very quickly. Like Rotten Tomatoes, it was two weeks from idea to launch. Yeah. Um, and then you can iterate very quickly. Yeah. Like games, it's a little bit different. Would you uh, do another game now that you know what you know about building the game? If you could build a team and uh, the team that you liked and uh, get some, raise some funding for it, um, you're still game playing games, right? You're still. I still player. like games. I think it's really hard. I mean, the thing with games is, um, it's a hits-driven business. Yeah. And so, there's no guarantee that if we if i didn't try make another game that it would be a hit like i don't have any hits in gaming right and even companies that have hits they'll release plenty of bombs i mean yeah. even not everything blizzard makes not everything supercell makes or zynga or whatever all these companies yeah not 100 percent of them are hits i mean actually a lot of them are bombs exactly. um and so it was a fun process i really do i really did like working with my team you know um I suppose if we had funding, all that stuff, maybe, but it, it is pretty hard. And uh, it takes a lot of, just a lot of work to go in there yeah. um, for unclear, you know, like payoff and stuff. I, I, to be honest, from, I did three companies after Rotten Tomatoes. There's one in China that I also did. And none of them went that well. And it took, in total, use about 7 million in funding for 14 years. So I'm not totally sure I would have the energy mm-hmm. to do another startup or another game or any of those things. Like lately I've been really much more focused around kind of mentoring and helping the next generation of, of founders. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, maybe eventually I have enough energy to do it. But right now, even right now, when I think about it, I'm like, man, it's just so tiring. <laughs> I mean, it's best left to like yeah. you know, the co- fresh college graduates and stuff. Sure. Sure. Okay, so what would you, if you had, okay, so this is part of the postmortem thing. You always have to like think about what is the most valuable advice that you ever got uh, through your journey through any of these startups? What would, if did anybody, did any other mentor give you anything, any investor give you anything that you always remember even today that you would use as something you would tell some, a new startup? Well, yeah, I definitely have a couple pieces of advice there, but I would say specifically for Hobo Labs, if you want to kind of have an idea of, of what went wrong. I mean, there was a few things I think are useful to highlight. Uh, number one, I think one of the biggest things for us was um, when we started, we only, we only were like, let's make a game. And we didn't have a clear idea. And even when we were raising money, we're like, oh yeah, we wanted to do something around these like guild and community mechanics, right? But we, again, we still didn't have an idea what the actual game was gonna be. Um, what we should have done looking back is Lyle and I, should have you know spent as long as we needed six to 12 months if we needed to go away somewhere and just 
talk through a game, try and design the games ourselves until we had something that we were like 80%, this is going to be the game that we both agreed on and both happy with. Mm. And then hire a team to build that game. And everyone we hire, we one hire people who actually are good to make that type of game because mm. depending on the game, who you would hire is very different. If you're making Animal Crossing versus if you're making World of Warcraft, very different kind of people. Yeah. Um, especially like artists, for example. Yeah. <laughs> and two, that they want to come in, they want to make this game. Because what we did was we hired really good people who we got along with. <laughs> Didn't want to make it. Once we had everyone in, we're like, now what do we make? And that was a mess because everyone had different tastes in games. Yeah. And so there's a lot of like, kind of like, infighting not like fighting so much but like trying to convince each other yeah. not every, not everyone even at the at, till the end not everyone was was sold on what we were trying to build and that was hard because you had too many cooks in the kitchen yeah and and it was a battle to go any direction everyone's pulling in different directions yeah. and it's just like um the analogy i would say is it's very similar to movies usually you come in and you're like here is the script or the treatment for the movie and then you hire the directors and actors and stuff that makes sense for that yeah. script, yeah. right? You yeah. don't just, even if you went and hired a great director and great actors and you put them together and then you're like, now what movie should we make? It's going to be almost guaranteed bomb, right? And what you can make with that set of directors and actors is going to be very dependent on that set of directors and actors. If you get a Tim Burton, you're kind of like limited to a certain type of movie versus if you got a Michael Bay or whatever, right? Um, and so that is something I've, I kind of learned the hard way where I'm like, that one fix alone, if we had settled on an idea first and then we hired a team around that, yeah. I think could have like seriously cut our entire time in half. Mm. Um, so that was one giant one. A couple other things I would say specifically around gaming was a lot of people gave us advice who were in gaming of like, you know what, find a game you like, copy it, but change one thing, <laughs> right? And so even like you look at like a Clash of Clans, yeah, there were games exactly. like that. Yeah. And they just came in and they changed like one thing. And a lot of the games that got popular were basically almost like clones of previous games but with one improvement in, of, of some type, yeah. right? And we were like, no, no, we don't want to just copy. We're not copying. We're going to do an original. We're going to go from scratch. Wow. And we, we did like look at other games and pull in elements we liked, but it was like a Frankenstein thing. It wasn't like... We've, we're going to follow this comp game and then change one thing about it. Like, let's say, add our guild component idea onto this game. And that's yeah, our yeah. whole thing. And the thing is, if you copy a game, Interesting. it's so, so much faster. Like, literally, yeah. like, a fifth of the time. If you, if, to be like, we're just going to straight everything copy it. I mean, we wouldn't straight everything copy it. But, I mean, yeah. in terms of game design, you don't need to iterate many things because you're not, like, experimenting. You're just like, we know this the only part that's experimenting is the new thing we're adding on it. Yeah. Like so many people gave us that advice and we were really stubborn and proud and we're like, no, 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 we're going to make a game from scratch. Again, that was a mistake. Like wow. looking back, they were totally correct. We should have, our whole theory was around like guild mechanics. That's the thing we should have been experimenting around, learning around, not that plus the whole design of the game on top of it. Right. <laughs> wow. It's just too many things. We changed too many variables at once. Um, and then I'd say the other part that we made a mistake around was just in general, we bit off more even chew, which I'll talk about more later, but we tried to have way too many features. We made way too complicated 
of a game for what we, for our team. We were nine people, you know, myself and Lyle and another guy, Adam, had never made a game before. So, you know, so at least three of us nine didn't know what we were doing within games, other than we like to play games. And then we made a synchronous multiplayer role-playing game, which is almost like the hardest thing you could possibly make yeah. for yeah. a mobile game. At the time, you know, you didn't have Fortnite and these other ones. I mean, the only synchronous games, I think, were Hearthstone and Clash Royale, basically. I mean, like almost nothing else mm. uh, when, when we first started trying to work on this idea. But we built something with nine people. You know, it took us a while, but it was like really way too much. I mean, the fact that we were even able to launch something is pretty amazing. But if we launch, you know, if we try to make Flappy Bird, we literally could have made that in like a week. You know what I mean? Like exactly. we could have done something, maybe not casual, but we could have done something a lot simpler than what we tried to make. It was really crazy complicated. That's a great, um, and great then, piece of advice, definitely. And then the last thing I would say specifically for mobile gaming was the game. We made a game we wanted to play, but it was actually like the most competitive space, like this mid-core kind of game targeting like RPGs, synchronous multiplayer, competitive. You know, we're running up against Supercell and, and Gung Ho with Puzzle and Dragons, you know, Supercell yeah. with Clash Royale, yeah. all that kind of stuff. That is like the most expensive kind of user to acquire, right? So we were going against people with the biggest budgets. And so our, our cost per user was like really high and we just couldn't make enough from those users. So there's like, I mean, there's other issues, but those are like some giant, giant issues that we had. Um, and then as far as what I learned from all my business combined, I mean, I would say that I had two major lessons besides the ones I mentioned uh, that I learned. One, I learned probably around the time we sold Ron Tomatoes, which was the value of networking. You know, when we did Ron Tomatoes, we, you know, myself and my two co-founders, Stephen and Sen, we are introverts. We were quite shy. We didn't like networking. We thought networking was like kind of gross, like, you know, used car salesman kind of thing. Um, we didn't like sales. Um, and so when we had a chance to sell the company, we didn't know what we were doing. Like we have never done that before. We didn't have any real like advisors or anything to kind of help us through that process. We yep. didn't have any network to know like how to sell. Should we sell? Is this the right time to sell? How to get competitive offers? Do we need a bank or not? Like so many, so many issues that had we had better advice, one, we probably would have known a little bit better about like the timing it and the process and probably would have had a like better outcome of a, of a multiples better outcome than what we did. And that was just me winging it based on like, yeah, I think that's how we do it. And we just had no idea. Yeah. And everything else up to that point, as an entrepreneur, we just winged it. We just said, this, this is how we think makes sense. And we just do it right or wrong. And you would learn from your mistakes. But again, with something like selling company, you only get to do that a few times in your life, maybe, right? And have something like Ron Tomatoes, that's probably most likely like something you only have once in your life ever, if, if at all. Yeah. And to kind of screw that up because we didn't have a network, that was a big, big lesson I learned and try to do a much better job about afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, the second thing I would say I didn't learn properly until literally my sixth company, which was Hobo Labs, was the, how important focus was. You know, my, my second company was a web design firm for the entertainment industry and we were very focused. Rotten Tomatoes was a very focused company in terms of like feature and the marketing category. But my next three, I think because of Rotten Tomatoes and because we sold Rotten Tomatoes, all three of them, we raised more money, had a bigger team, everything. And I'm like, let's do all the things. And it was actually wrong. Uh, and because we tried to do too much, that was like a huge reason why all three of them failed. 
Um, and again, I didn't realize that until I was in Hawaii last year helping out blue startups, uh, you know, following your footsteps as an entrepreneur in residence there and working with all those startups there. And I kept saying to them, like, you guys are all trying to do too much. You got to focus, you got to focus, you got to focus. And only after saying that to them for like literally like three months, I'm like, <laughs> shit, I didn't focus on my last three companies. Like that was the problem. Yeah. And by telling them made me realize it. And it's funny. I didn't, we were focused for on tomatoes and that's why it worked. And I didn't realize that that's a big reason why it worked. And when I, again, when I looked at literally every company, my friends' companies that were successful, or, but even any company I can possibly think of, every single one of them was like super crazy focused in the beginning. I mean, like Facebook was only in Harvard. Amazon was only books until they actually managed to go IPO selling books. Yeah. Right? Google was a search. I bet you if you went to the day one of McDonald's, it was probably one dude in one restaurant for a few years just perfecting recipes. That's I'm exactly guessing. what it was. Exactly okay. what it was. And I'm it sure if you went to like KFC. Franchising into a later, right? It was, it was one restaurant and making yeah. that efficient, right? And I bet like a KFC or like literally anything you look at, you know, even recently, like just within like video or, or let's go from Yahoo, right? Yahoo yeah. is this great search engine. And then Google comes out and like manages to beat them because they beat them at the one thing they're good at, which is search, right? But then even Google has Google video and even YouTube can come out with a lot less resources and manage to compete and beat Google video at video, yeah. right? And then even YouTube, you're like, they're done, they won. And you could still come out with something like a Twitch that's like, only live streaming within games and still manage to carve out that category, which is actually a super valuable category um, where to a point where it's competitive with YouTube mm. or even better than YouTube, I would say yeah. for that category. And then you would say like, that's it. There's no, nothing more in video. And you could still come out with like a Snapchat with this like self-destructing video. Right. And then you could still come out with like a TikTok, which is, I mean, I've never used it, but like, looks like these short things with, with music on them. Right. Like you keep coming out with new ones because they, they go like more and more specific and manage to carve out something that actually turned out to be quite big, right? So um, that was like the biggest lesson I've learned in my entire startup career is how important focus is. And the problem, the reason why it's such a big issue is entrepreneurs, you know, by their nature are people who believe in them themselves. They believe they can do anything. And because they believe they can do anything, they wanna do everything. Yeah. They're like, I can do everything when a customer comes to them and they're like, that they're trying to sell. They're like, well, what about this feature? What about this feature? Like, we'll add them all. But what happens when you sold 10 customers and you've added in their 10 or 20 feature requests? Suddenly you have this like really unfocused, horrible product, Yeah. you know, and it's really hard to say no. And you go and you look at, you know, go read Zero to One by Peter Thiel. He talks about focus. You go read uh, the Steve Jobs book. He also talks about focus. Yeah. All these great um, entrepreneurs all realized it and and that is by far the biggest lesson that i learned that's definitely the one thing i'm walking away from this talk with you is about is learning the power of saying no and just being able to uh just focus and just say no just being some people may think you're mean for saying that or you know think you're so great you're not helping out but i feel like if you say no and and know what you're building because you know you're going one way. I mean, what you just said, I read the Netflix book just recently, same thing with, with them. It's all about just focusing and just 
putting the blinders on amongst all these other opportunities. Because yeah, as a startup, you think about all these things because people come to you and give you these ideas. Hey, you should do this, you should do this. And big companies will give you money and say, if, you give, if I give you this much more money, you should go into this market. And you're like, okay, I'm going to do that. But in the day, it's very tough to, to, to pull all those in. Fantastic. Yep. Thanks a lot, Patrick. I think that we'll put a pin in it there. That's some amazing content. I hope everybody took some notes on that. And uh, thank you very much for being part of uh, this year's postmortem where we're doing it uh, virtually. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me.